Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome to part two of Don McGregor, The Road to Black Panther, here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Let's continue. Now, when you were at Warren, did you leave Warren to then do the proofreading job with Marvel in 1972? Did you work at both? Because your first story at Marvel was Journey to Mystery number four in 1973, which was co-written with Gardner Fox. How did that all come about? Because they called me in Rhode Island. Time, like I had told you earlier, I was traveling into New York. Whenever I had enough money, I would just get a round-trip ticket, take the bus in New York, stay with Billy and Alex for as long as I can. When I totally ran out of money, I'd use the bus ticket and come back home. And I had worked for the National Guard for a while, and I stayed with that. To be honest with you, like most people probably would have stayed with that because it was a government job. But my temperament wasn't such that I should probably stay there. I'd probably ended up in the brig. I wrote a story called This is the Valiant One, signing out that Billy Graham drew for Monsters Unleashed at Marvel later on. Mm -hmm. That's all the stuff about the soldier being called before a promotion board and being accused of being prejudiced against military policemen is all based on fact. This was during, at the time frame that I was there, this was during, you know, this moment there's a lot of riots going on throughout the country, and I'm going to go into various stories on that. But because we had people in that unit that were racist, and yeah. had said stuff about killing blacks using very terrible terms. And I reported them to the captain of the unit or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then when they put me before the promotion board, they started to be asked if I was prejudiced military policeman. And I could see the lay of the land. And I was in a cellar that was in an armory and had bars on the windows that ankle high if you were outside was on the hill. There's people's feet walking by. I was going to get out of there. So at, at any rate, I was working a number of different jobs. I've heard somebody from editorial research, they keep changing the story about my getting there, that, that they saved me from life as a security guard. Uh, that's just all I ever would have been if they hadn't offered me a job at Marvel Comics. Well, that's bullshit. I had a house with three bedrooms and a fireplace and a garage. And I had a view of a pond across the way, and three blocks away was a private stretch of a beach and ocean front. So like, mm -hmm. And I gave it up for a $125 a week job at Marvel Comics. So I want to know how many people would do that. And then I had a daughter that was at the time, I would imagine Laura was about two, I guess, something like that. But there was a chance to, to write. You know, I, I loved Marvel Comics, and I was already writing for Warren. And it was very close to some of the stuff to Mike Shane, Mystery Magazine, and Cosmopolitan. And that's where I really was aiming toward. That's why the collection of short stories was able to come about. Those are stories originally that I had written when I was peddling my stories. I never went to Marvel Comics. I never went to D.C. Doing the comics with Warren were just fine for me. I had a good relationship with Jim Warren. I had a good relationship with Billy Graham. Like, really, except for the money, there was no problem there. When I went to Marvel to do the editorial job, in the beginning, I mean, it really was kind of like, there yeah, kind of as an editorial gopher. You know, like, but a majority of the job was reading the reprint books that went out. And so that's how the God the Fox story comes about. Some of the reprint stories were like horror stories they did in the 50s. And while I don't, to be honest with you, recall what the problem was, there was something the code wasn't going to approve that was in that story. I don't have any memory of what it would be, so they wanted me to rewrite it. To write a new ending or something that was suitable for the code. Mm -hmm. I have no memory of what that was. I know so it has me listed as writing with God the Fox. Never met Godner in my life. 
okay, if you want to put it down as part of what I did, I guess, but it was really just writing some new ending or I think maybe we had to change a few panels here and there. I really don't remember what the deal was. That was the job I was doing there was reading the reprint books. And part of those reprint books was Jungle Action. And so one of my reactions was to the Jungle Stories and saying something too editorial, like, I can't believe you guys are putting out this racist stuff this in the 1970s. I just can't believe you reprint this stuff. I wasn't yeah. even thinking of the Black Panther. I know I had said something like, can't you at least have a black character that's a jungle hero? I wasn't thinking that they were going to do new stuff in there. Or, or that I had no power in those days at all at Marvel Comics. I was just there proofreading the reprint stories. But there was a lot of unwritten rules in the comic industry at that time. And one of it was, like, if you had an editorial job and you were on staff, that somewhere along the way you would be given the chance to write something. And when I was given The Black Panther and Kill Raven, I was given those books. I found out later, no reason for this person to lie to me about it. Steve Gerber told me that he was in a meeting with when he says, well, we'll give down this jungle action Black Panther thing because jungle strips don't sell. At that time, I think Joe Cooper had been doing Tarzan for DC and I guess it hadn't done very well. And I think the general attitude in people in the suits was that, well, if you can't sell Tarzan in comics, what the hell can you in that genre can you sell? They thought these books were going to die, and they could tell me that I had my chance. And I think they knew I had no political aspirations. I wasn't trying to become editor-in-chief. I had no interest in it whatsoever. And or if I did, I was going about it in the straightest way possible. I was only involved in doing whatever the work was that came in and when I had a chance writing my stories. And I think at that time, I probably was still doing some stories for Warren, but you know, I know Jim was upset with me because I went over to Marvel. You traded to me, Don. You were traded down me. And I said, Jim, you're paying me. I think by that time I was getting $40 a story. You're paying me $40 a story. Give me a break, Jim. But Jim and I stayed friends. I mean, I'm friends with him to this day. Now, Sid Shores did some art for your story in Chamber of Chills 5, 1973. Did you meet Sid? No. No, okay. So a lot of times you'd put in a script and it's not like you'd meet the people that did your stuff, right? Well, that's actually not the case for me. But in that story, yes. I don't remember exactly how I got the offer to do a story. And that would be one of the places that if you were starting out to then, because the war and stuff didn't count. It didn't matter what the influence say the fadeaway walk had or the men who called the monster, a tangible hatred. A lot of those stories, a number of people, especially the night the snow spilled blood, I think Jim Salakrup, I always tease Jim. To this day, you say, Jim, I never got better than that, right? I peaked. <laughs> but those stories didn't mean anything to Marvel editorial at all. But when you got offered things, because there's, there's only one story I can think of that I wish I had never done, and they wanted me to adapt an August Thriller story in the comics. Vampire Tales or something. And it's not because I think I'm a better writer or storyteller than Durlis. I didn't agree with the story. I didn't like what it was about. And I tried to turn it into the best comics I could, but I think it involved little kids somehow. And it was like, it's not the kind of story I would do. And I said no, but I also knew that if I said no... That's just not the way things were done. And like, so the first time you offered a story, you say, no, I don't want to do it. I couldn't find any way that I could just say no and not have it have real consequences. Right. Somewhere in that same time frame, I was still, I could do a six page story, that horror anthology book or whatever it was. And my editorial didn't like it. And even said they shouldn't have let me get away with it because it wasn't good comics or something. I don't know. Mm. You know, people can judge for themselves because the story is the story and it's still the same story that I wrote. I had no problem with that story. I mean, I, it's like with a lot of it. I wish a lot of it were better. But for a six-page story, give me a break. <laughs> you know, yeah. no better or worse than anything else that was in there. And you know, there's a couple of lines I, I think I still, I think I like the last lines for the ending. It's very kind of in a Rod Serling kind of vein. So like, there you go. if you're being Serling-esque, um, probably is a poor Rod Shelley, but still in all, it's, 
you know, a good influence or yeah. whatever. So that's how that story came to be. So then now in 1972, was basically Roy the editor-in-chief at the time you joined or was Stan still editor-in-chief at that time? Did you talk much with Stanley around this time? And the Stan was not in editorial all that much. He had his own office off to the side. But, you know, Stan was very much going around doing promotion for Marvel and doing mm -hmm. speaking engagements and, and things like that. So uh, he was there. I didn't see all that much of Stan, but I certainly had some dealings with Stan, especially when it came to doing the interracial kiss at Marvel Comics, because that ended up being a much bigger situation than I had realized it would be when I started to do it. So does that answer that question? Well, it kind of does, yeah. And Jim is actually going to take that baton and talk about a little more officially your time at Marvel. So go ahead, Jim. Before I get into Jungle Action and Kill Raven, I want to talk a little bit about the people you were working with in 1972, or at least the people that were fellow writers and artists at that time, because this is my favorite Marvel period, really. The Steve Gerber, Engelhart's, Doctor Strange, Starlin. What was it like? Did you guys realize just how cool your comics were at that time? Was there a competition between you to churn out the best stuff? No, I think most of the stuff you're talking about, the people were doing it independently from wherever they were situated. I don't really remember even meeting Jim Stalin. I might have crossing because I was on staff in the beginning. You might have run across more people because that's where you were. You weren't at home writing or putting the stuff together. There were people I was close with, especially as it when I was really close with Rich Buckler and Craig Russell and Billy Graham, and they're all artists. You have to understand, the books themselves, when they came out, were not really thought of fondly by Marvel Editorial. Other than Black Panther or Kill Raven, I can think of three people off the top of my head that liked those books. And that would be Jim Solicrup and David Anthony Kraft and John David Warner. And there may have been others. I'm not saying there wasn't. I don't know. But those are the three I can really think of. In terms of writers that I actually hung out with to any extent, but that would have been like more later. There's a lot of stuff happens in between 73 and 75, not just with the books, but my personal life. Everything comes upon it. The scenes is a turbulent time, and it's full of really big highs, a lot of excitement, and really becoming aware of the readers and the fans and having a real intimate connection with them. And, you know, at the same time, fighting to do the stories that I want to do and becoming really good friends with the artists I was working on. Yeah, I didn't get to see the artists work on those short stories, but when I was first up in the offices, I don't remember how we first met, but Rich Buckler had an office space up there. Rich had a lot of power those days at Marvel. He was doing a lot of covers for them. He was doing an important A-list series like the Fantastic Four, mm. The Avengers, or whatever books Rich was doing. So he was very much, and he was doing a lot of covers. So he was very much in demand, and you know, it gave him a lot of leeway into what he wanted to do at that time. Somehow, while Rich was there, we met and got to be friends. And I think it was because we both wanted to do comics I really had distinct ideas of what I wanted to do, storytelling-wise. And thank God Rich embraced that. And anything I virtually asked of Rich, he never said, oh, no, that's too much work. Because remember, no matter if you spend one hour on a page, you spend a day on a page, you spend a week on a page, you get the same amount of money. So like many people are trying to turn this around as fast as they can because they're trying to make a living. And at the same time, they're trying to do the best work they can do. So it's a dichotomy there. And so, but I get very fortunate because when I was given the Black Panther to do, Rich said he was going to do it. They didn't want Rich on a book. They wanted him on important stuff. But because Rich wanted to be there, and Rich got me to move out to the Bronx. Before that point in time, I had been staying with Alex Simmons. At that time, Alex was now out of Spanish Harlem, and he was living in Brooklyn. So I, in the beginning, I was kind of staying with him while looking for a place. And it was Rich Buckler that found me a place up in the Bronx because Rich wanted us to be together. So, you know, I'm working on staff during the day, and then I would go back up to the Bronx at night, eat dinner, and then I would go over and 
state riches for an hour or two. And I would actually get posed and say, no, the Black Panther's going to be like this. And you can see photographs of me. They still exist of me doing Panther poses for Rich and, and designing a lot of the title pages. That takes nothing away from Rich. Rich had to pull them off. And I would say, hey, Rich, can we turn the page on the side so we can do that waterfall? And it was where I thought I could get the most extreme height for the waterfall. And you have to continue to remember that we only had 13 pages of story that had the last to read us for two months. That's not a lot of pages to get the audience to invest in your characters, in your story, in what this is about to come back the next time around. I was well aware, for instance, if I wrote Wakabi or Taku or in Killraven, Mishula, an old skull, whoever it should be, if I wrote them out for one issue, that meant the reader did not see them for four months. Right. If you left them out of two issues, that's half a year. That's really a long time to ask an audience to invest in a character. So I was very determined. That was one of the things I was always trying to address, that the characters in each issue there, they had a presence, and there was something new about them that you would learn if you were an old reader, and if you were a new reader, you would be introduced to those characters so you would know what they were. But there were a lot of things to consider before you could start those scripts. So when you and Buckler were working on the very first one, Jungle Action 6, was there a notion that y'all were going to break a lot of rules and really do just something extraordinary? Because it's not just the writing, which is sort of unprecedented in terms of how style and things, but the story itself with its Steranko style title pages and certain other aspects of it, it really did stand out on the market as different from your average Marvel book. It was like nothing I had seen. Was that really trying to achieve something completely different? Well, I hope as a creator, you just, that's part of being uniquely who you are, for better or worse. So I had no interest in what other people were doing. That's their business, not mine. I can love it or hate it or be in between about it, but I'm coming that as a fan. To be honest with you, by the time I was writing the books, I'm invested in writing the books. When they gave me the Black Panther, I was told basically one thing. You're going to be doing the Black Panther, and it's set in Wakanda. So at that time, there had been very few Black Panther set in Wakanda stories. If there were over half a dozen, I'd be hard-pressed to like say how many over half a dozen. So, yeah, there and, was that Avengers issue with Bushima, and I can't think of a whole lot in the Fantastic Four, obviously, but there wasn't very much at all, was there? No. But, but there were a lot of Black Panther stories. I read everything. And in those days, you could. And in fact, I think Jim Solicup lent me his books because at that time, much of my stuff was still back in Rhode Island. So I didn't have access to it yet because in the beginning, when I first started writing it, I probably was still living with Alex when I actually first started. I'm not sure of that, but like right after that would have been moving up to the Bronx because I know when Rich and I do Morbius the Living Vampire together, I'm definitely up at the Bronx because when I do the conclusion of that first story, the cops came to my apartment at midnight. So that part of it is emblazoned in my mind, and I definitely have to be in the Bronx by that point in time. So within a very short time of being given the books, but I was like, now as I was reading them, like, okay, what do I like and what don't I like, and what do we have? Because there were so few stories, and because you've got this great concept between Stan and Jack, the Black Panther Wakanda and this hidden super secret African society. But essentially, the place at that point in time is basically the palace, I don't know, maybe there's some woodland area and the vibranium mound. Yeah. Because you don't have, you know, like, say the first two Fantastic Four books. Well, you get the Fantastic Four. I think Wayne is in there at the same time. And then you get Charles. So you get six characters right there that you're going to be dealing with. And you've only got two issues, and I think they go up against the villain. I don't really remember the stories offhand, but it meant that from the beginning, I thought, okay, so Charles is going to come back to Wakanda, because they had had him in New York as a teaching school in Harlem. Now, why the king of an African nation would be a school teacher in New York, like, is beyond me. I understand why they did it. They wanted to get T'Challa into the United States so they could have him be a part of adventures with other superheroes, and think eventually because a part of the Avengers, I don't know that he has much to do there. Or anyhow, I don't have much memory of it. But 
Now, I've got to find a reason that when he comes back. One of my first thoughts I remember having was, okay, we're doing a bi-monthly book of 13 pages. And it's a superhero, so there's going to be a supervillain in there somewhere. And if I do them as separate stories, that means every issue, there has to be a new villain introduced, and then there has to be something that they're doing. And eventually I thought, why, after three or four issues, the Wakanda should just go to Shala. Why don't you go back to America? Because before you showed up, we never had any problems. So (laughs) that was my first inclination. Okay, this is going to be one story. It's all going to be linked together. So that the adversaries that he's coming up against, oh, it's there's a reason for that. And then that led to the creation of Killmonger. Somebody who, if a king abdicated his kingdom, who's to oversee that? And what's going to happen if there's a revolution? And, you know, war was going on at the time. So that was something, I guess I thought there's a lot of stuff to be able to write about there. It would anchor the character. And so that began to develop the idea of doing the story as a novel. It's interesting because it occurs to me that Kirby was doing this with his New Gods book as well, where there was a central villain, but each month you would be introduced to the various lieutenants and they carried the story forward. But the real tension was waiting for the return of or the appearances of the master villain in it. And I can't think of very many examples of that on a long period of time, except for yours and Kirby's New Gods. I'll take your word for that. I mean, uh, I, I, think, <laughs> I think the New Gods is done later than the Black Panther. We're talking 73 for the Panther. I think this is the New Gods stuff at D.C., bit down the line or no or no it's I, the same period of time okay quite possible I don't, it's so far i feel from I, it wasn't a part of my reality my reality was the black panther and trying to figure out okay what is this going to be and it just seemed to me it had to be tied together and then originally it was going to be like 10 books i think i knew thematically there was going to be a major theme that ran through the entire course of the storyline and then each issue would have its own minor theme, but that would also amplify the major theme of the story. Not sure why, Ken, because even though it was a continued story, I think as I mentioned earlier, I really love the old Republic series. I'm not sure why I didn't do it in my head as 12 or 13. It seemed like it's just that I had 10 stories. They have it all fleshed out, just the idea, okay, it was going to be 10. And it did eventually become 13 with the epilogue because the center stories needed a lot more room than I had initially given them for the themes that I wanted to deal with. So that same time that it was coming up with that, because I worry about everything, I thought, okay, that all the Panther stories maybe should be novels if I stay with it. And so before I even wrote a page of Panther's Rage, I realized when I was reading the books that no one had ever mentioned the Black Panther's mother. And if you notice in Panther's Rage, I never mentioned his mother at all. Because I thought, okay, the next storyline will be he goes to South Africa and has to deal with apartheid while he's searching to find his mother, who for some reason, and I didn't know what the reason was, wasn't in South Africa. Unfortunately, by the time I was finishing Panther's Rage, I was in the midst of a very emotional divorce. I was going to custody courts to keep seeing my daughter. I was fighting with editorial (laughs) all the time. It was a very tumultuous time. And I realized I'm not going to have the focus and energy that I would need to research doing stories set in South Africa. And that's how the Panther versus the Klan comes about. Because I could take him to Monica's home state in Georgia. And I had noticed that Already there was an extremism that was starting to appear in America. The the Klan was on an insurgence in various states in the Union. The Reverend Sunday Moon and a lot of the very strict religious groups who felt their way was the only way and there was no other way. And they said to me, well, that's something worth writing about. And I don't need to do a tremendous amount of research to bring him over to America. And so that's what kind of made me lean in that direction and also something I wanted to write about 
and it would be a totally different kind of story. I wasn't interested in writing the same story over and over and over again. And going back to the beginning, so now I also decided in doing Panther's Rage, Charlotte needed a villain, and that began. Now we're working on an idea that the stories are going to be connected. Started working on the creation of Killmonger. As much acceptance as that character has these days because of the movie, you have to understand that he was not accepted by Marvel editorial at all. While he appears on the first cover after that, he was not allowed to be on the covers anymore. And just your question is, why is that, Don? Well, the reason is because they were not used to a black character that was as angry and uh-huh. as ferocious and as strong as Eric Killmonger was. So literally, he he couldn't appear on the covers again. And if you think I'm just saying that, or you just have to look at the covers. He doesn't appear again until after a year's worth of books. And when he does, he wasn't even scheduled to be on that cover. I need to back up for one minute on this because I had no power over the covers. What you see in those covers, I had absolutely nothing to do with. Love some of those covers. The only way that I had anything to do with them is they're inspired by my stories. Because those books were low priority, they weren't A-list books. Editorial would go over them with whoever was going to do the covers, whether it was Gil Kane, whether it was Rich, whoever might be doing the covers, they would go over the artist and discuss what the cover was going to be. I had no input into it whatsoever. The cover with Charles being attacked by the ice wolves, originally, when Rich drew that cover, only the wolves are on that cover. And if you look at the cover, you can see there's a little figure of Killmonger. Editorial had decided, no, no, it's got to have a human villain in there. And they didn't have the cover redrawn. They had Rich put Killmonger between the wolves' legs. And he looks like a tiny little action figure. And he looked, look, he's back, Killmonger. And that's the only time he appears on the cover of a book from the first time that he was introduced into the series. And then he's allowed the last book of Panther's Rage, which is two years and some months later, he's allowed back on the cover. Who at editorial would you, know you say? I'm not going to do a he said, she said thing because oh. you know what? We'll do that. And then suddenly because, oh, it's because Don doesn't like that person. Or he doesn't like, well, that person doesn't like that person. And the problem is you're not looking at what the situation, what you could do in pop culture and what you couldn't. And there were unwritten rules. The the problem that came with the Black Panther is, I'm giving an edict. You're going to do the Black Panther set in Wakanda. That's it. Everything else is whatever I came up with and then discussed with Rich and we had to pull off. And unlike the movie, by the way, we don't have millions of dollars. We can't go to a set designer. We can't go to a costume people. It all has to come from when you're first creating the stuff. So now you're trying to create the villains, create the themes, create the stories, and it all has to be put together within a bi-monthly schedule. I remember that cover that you're talking about because it had a purple background and Klaus Janssen inked it. It was striking, though. You were lucky because you had two of the principal Marvel cover artists working on the book at various times because you had Rich Buckler and then it was followed by Gil Kane. So you had tremendous story sense as your collaborators, not to mention well, I, once it becomes Billy Graham. Because Rich fought to be there. And whatever storytelling ideas I had, Rich had no problem. Because we were sitting side by side while we were working on those initial books. It's amazing that Rich had half a year on the Black Panther. He did three books, and by that time, he, there's just no way he could continually fight off. I don't know how Gil Kane got to be on the one issue in between. Gil needed the extra work that month. I don't know. Maybe he liked that genre. I, I really don't know because I didn't know Gil that well. I mean, I certainly met Gil and talked with him maybe briefly, but I didn't really know him. Not like I did Billy Graham and Rich Buckler. So many people think that I got Billy on the book. I didn't have anything to do with getting Billy on the book. Yes, Billy and I were good friends. And by the way, you mentioned One Wakes the Dreamer, which was the first story I sold to Warren. The reason it didn't see print until years later was that Billy liked the number of the scripts I had done for Warren. And he took them along with the Vampire Storks, The Castle of the Night, One Wakes the Dreamer, and a couple others. And he had taken them because he was going to draw them. And he actually drew the first page of One Wakes the Dreamer, which was off of my page layout. And I still have that original line. It was beautiful. But the art director at one at the time, and I think he just didn't have time 
to spend doing the artwork that he wanted to do. And I think that's eventually the reason why Billy quit. He didn't want the staff job. He, you know, he wanted to be an artist. Billy wanted that freedom, not to just be, like the drawing would give him freedom so that he could do a lot of things. And Billy had a lot of talent. And Billy was truly a Renaissance guy. But, you know, Billy also wrote, he also acted, he also did stage designs. He did stuff for the Amsterdam News. He was really a busy guy. And when we do the saber and exploitation of everything dear storyline that Billy drew, which hopefully will come out sometime this year with all the artwork restored and seen in a way that you've never seen it before. I'll tell a lot of the stories about my times with Billy. I'm not going to say them here. One thing, though, is I realized, oh, a lot of the adventures that we had, at the time that I was with Billy, he was living the life he wanted to live in Manhattan. And that was his city. But now I know he's got a granddaughter. I'm thinking, it's kind of like the old Bob Seger song, Against the Wind. He has a line of what to leave in, what to leave out. And now that I know he's got a granddaughter, I was like, oh, I don't know. Some of these stories, maybe I'm not sure. (laughs) At one time, I thought, I'll just, I'll tell a lot of the Billy stories that I just have always kept so that they'll be preserved in the book that showcases his artwork. But at any rate, I didn't choose Billy for the Panthers Rage book, I didn't have that power to do that. Marvel Editorial put him on. And the deal was in those days, and I don't care who wants to admit it and who doesn't want to admit it, most of these people do not want to admit where they were at in 1973 and 1974 and 1975. But if you were black and you were an artist in comics, and by the way, I don't know if there were any black writers yet at Marvel Comics, but if you were a black artist, you would normally put on a black title. So Billy, say, for instance, was on Luke Cage, Power Man, for the longest time. And right. that's the reason that Billy ends up on Black Panther. Later on, obviously, that will change. But at that point, editorial was not crazy about the fact that everybody in the series was black. Now, see, you asked me about, well, was I trying to be ahead of my time? Was I trying to do stuff like the show? Oh, look, we're, I don't remember the phrases that you used. Here's the whole reason why there's a black cast of characters in Panther's Rage. I am told that the stories are set in Wakanda and Chala returning to Wakanda. What is Wakanda? It's a hidden African nation that nobody knows to say. It's so sophisticated. Chala's found a way to keep everybody from knowing who it is. Doesn't matter what country it is, they can't get in there. And so you can't have stories where white people just keep stumbling into Wakanda and finding vibranium and trying to steal it. There's got to be other storylines. But that also means that every character is Wakandan. So that means that where are the white people are supposed to come from? And so as the stories went along, it became more and more of a problem. Where's the white people? And bring the Avengers in. But as I was doing the conventions and I was meeting people and the people were writing for the book, a lot of what was given applause by the media for the movie is stuff that was in the books back in 1973 through 75. And, yes. But the only reason it was done is because it's set in Wakanda. And that means that all the characters have to be Wakandan. Therefore, you virtually had no black cast except the Venom. And I want to talk about Venom because I think he's an important character as well in terms of breaking ground. And we'll talk about that in a minute. A few art questions on this. That one issue that Gil Kane did is interesting to me because I think A lot of fans of the series remember that issue especially, and it even shows up in the movie because Gil Kane was a great jungle animal artist. He worked on Tarzan strip, and he really knew how to draw animals. And that sequence with him and the rhino is just brilliant, and I remember that very vividly. Did you try to write at all to the strengths of the three artists that worked on the strip, or did you just keep it the same throughout? Okay, I'm sure I didn't know that Gil Kane was going to draw the issue that he drew. I don't know how it got to be there, and I think the issue looks terrific. I have one memory, or two memories, of that particular book. It obviously was a much different situation than working with Rich, because I was with Rich all the time. So we were always going over the pages. And Rich and I were also doing Morbius the Living Vampire, and we did the Hodiah Twist story. The Vampire Tales as well. So Rich and I were together a lot doing different stories, and we worked very, very closely together. Uh, I really had no 
contact with Gil. The two things I remember about that issue is the title page, because Gil didn't do the title, but now the spear's broken. <laughs> Danny Crespi actually did, who was the head of production at Marvel at the time. And Danny was really kind to me. I remember Danny saying, don't worry, I'll do this page the way you want it done. And he got the book and now the book and spears in there and the lettering for the title. And he hit it like he had a bundle of corrections of things that he was supposed to do. And they definitely would not have given that to Danny. That was Danny being kind of me. I think both John Verporten and Danny Crespi thought this business is going to eat this kid up. And I think in their own ways, at times they tried to be a little bit of a buffer, <laughs> trying to protect me from powers that may not be so benign. Uh-huh. So Danny did a lot of the work on that. And the only other thing I remember is that the sequence where I had all the murder clues, originally I all had it missed and seen. It was all in the big palace sequence, and there were no close-up panels of it. And that was Gil. Gil went that way. At first, I wasn't sure we were putting it too much in the face of the readers, but when it finally got done, when I finally saw it, I said, no, it's like we're even playing fair with the readers because now it's right there, and they can't say it was just snuck in and hidden in the background. So ultimately, I was kind of glad that he went that route. But that will show you how much I was thinking about how a story should be told for any particular scene. Now, the difference with Billy is I could design a page any way I wanted, and Billy said, you design whatever you want done. I will get it drawn. And Billy was terrific. I mean, that part of it, again, I got really lucky. I was with somebody who was really talented and who believed in what I was doing because really, as a writer, you could bleed onto the paper. You could care all you want. But if you don't have an artist to bring it to life, I thought you just dead in the water. So I got very fortunate that I had Rich and Billy for the Black Panther, and then also fortunate that Craig Russell, but that's a whole other story. So let's talk about the actual characters you created for the Black Panther, for Panther's Rage, because they are indelible. Venom, I want to talk about, because he was the one white character, and probably, I won't say the least intelligent, but the least eloquent in his phrasing and in his talking. What were you trying to do with him? And you ultimately made him into an incredibly sympathetic character. Did you know you were going to do that from the very beginning? I think you can assess that for reading the stories, to be honest with you. I always hope that when people were finished with, say, Panther's Rage, that if they went back and read the books from the beginning, they could see, oh, Don was setting this up as early book one. Book four. I kept Kanto, for instance, from the first page with Rhino charging. He becomes a major character and he keeps appearing throughout. Obviously, the ending is there. I didn't tell anyone. If I had, I never would have gotten it through. As time went by, one more I learned to keep my own console. And by the way, never talk to other writers about what you're going to do in comics, certainly at that time, because they want to tell you how to do it, how they would do it. And oh, no, I have an idea. You'll never hear it be able to, or people can say it, but it'd be absolutely lie, because I never discussed what I was going to do. Not even with. I'm sure that Rich never would have known, Billy never would have known how Panthers Rage was going to end. They knew what I was doing when they got the script. And there might be somewhere down the line that I might say, oh, hey, Billy, make sure you need to do this because I'm going to pick up on that later. But what I was going to do with it, probably I never told, even though certainly it would have been safe to tell Rich and Billy they would never have gone to anywhere where you could be told that you couldn't do it. Because editorials are most often are going to tell you, no, you can't do it. And if you're told, no, you can't do it, and then you try to go ahead and anyhow and do it, then that's open defiance. And then it's going to be war. And ultimately, you're not going to get anywhere as a writer. It's not going to help you get to where you need to go. You need to find a way to stay as much away from them as possible and concentrate and focus on what the story you're trying to tell. Because he was also the first gay character I ever Well, did. that's exactly where I was going. I was going to ask you, did people ask you about that, readers or editorial, and or did you just spring that on people? Obviously, I was very careful with that. If you notice, because the thing with, don't forget, I was doing Kill Raven at the same time. So I was kind of alternating 
on one month, I guess, Kill Raven came out. Next month, the Black Panther and back and forth. So when I was doing Kill Raven, again, there were a lot of things you considered. What am I going to do with this? Again, that was a book I think they had high aspirations for in the beginning when they started Kill Raven. They had a sure. lot of name talent on it, but the title went through three different artists and writers, I think, in as many in the first three issues. Well, that's kind of a death knell for a book anyhow. Science fiction wasn't noted to sell. I think if they had the initial thing had been able to be done the way with the talent they had initially started it with, it would have been totally different. But now you had three separate writers, and I was starting with the fourth issue. And I'm sure I've been an enemy here, but I think the writer doing so, I'm going to tell you everything I intend to do. I, I, I really don't care what you're going to do. I just want to write my own stories. You guys are writing like four or five books a month. Can't you possibly just let me write my own stories? But they didn't think I was a good enough storyteller to do that. And so when the fans started reacting so much to the book, there was a lot of antagonism about it. And, you know, there's a lot of egos at play there. But there were also things what you could or what you couldn't do. And I knew early on, for instance, that I was going to have Mishula and Camilla get together. Pretty quick into bringing her into the group. I knew this is something I'm going to do. I might not know exactly when I'm going to do it or how I'm going to evolve that. And I did the same thing I did with Taku and with Venom. Every issue, they had a scene. They had a scene that was just theirs. That and jail was- scene is my favorite scene in the entire series. Oh, great. <laughs> All the characters had a scene that was theirs. And if you look at the approach to leading up to Camilla and Mishula being together, it's kind of the same format, if that's the word I want to use. But continuing to have a scene that has the two of them together, and it's very intimate. There's a real connection between the characters, but they're not the same characters. They have really totally strikingly different personalities. But while doing the Kill Raven thing early on, and I had just done a couple of sequences with them together. It was then I got called into the editorial office. And they wanted to know if an artist had objected to the salt and pepper relationship. That's their quotes, not mine. And so then I was being asked if I was going to do a salt and pepper relationship in the Kill Raven strip. And I knew wow. it was too early. If I told them I was, I was going to be told I couldn't do it. And... A lot of times when you're speaking with people in comics, you have to figure out a way of expressing it that they'll get, they'll understand. And at that time, Modesty Blaze was a big favorite of many people working in comics. So I said, basically, you know, right now it's just Modesty Blaze and Willie Garvin and your friends and warriors together, that, something like that. Then I kept hoping that you guys would come along and keep saying, Don, when are you going to let these two get together? But, you know, I had not as quit the book. So now I know I have to be really careful with the Venom and Taco stuff. And I knew I could never have him come out. Then I was already on shaky ground with the interracial stuff. And thankfully, the readers really did start asking, well, I felt I had enough support from the readers, I could say, okay, I want to go see Stan on this. And I could have just gone to Stan. I mean, Stan had an office there, but it's all protocol. This is just like being in the military. If you go and you sidestep the sergeants and the lieutenants and you go to the captain, you're basically declaring war. And that would mean everything I went to do in those books would become more difficult to do. So then you had to do it according to the politics of the place. So then I went to editorial and say, I want a meeting with Stan to discuss doing an interracial kiss. And because now if they turn me down on meeting with Stan, they have to explain why. Well, then if it gets to Stan and there's question about it, why wouldn't you pass it? Going that way, Stan was the one who could actually make that kind of decision and say, yes, it could be done. It seems like odd that this is even us discussing this in 2020, but in 1973, 74, whichever year that was, it wasn't. And so eventually there was a big meeting with Stan, me and editorial. But I knew how to approach Stan on this kind of thing. If I, if I had a shot at all of doing it, because it's not enough to just write it. If you can't get it to see print, if it can't become a reality that you can hold in your hands, what's the sense of even doing it? You've got to have a shot, knowing that you've got a chance to make it reach the audience. 
So when we met with Stan at some point, I know Stan said, well, Don, can't she be green? And I said, well, you know, Stan, what are you going to do? Well, she isn't. She's white. Well, I, I'm just concerned that the PTA and down in someplace down south is going to see this. And I said, do you want what your kids are seeing in, in the comic book? And uh, I said, well, you know, thing is, Stan, I don't know. I've heard rumors that DC has been talking about doing an interracial kiss in one of the romance comics. <laughs> and I think it would just be a shame if DC were to do it before Marvel. And say, so, oh, I don't want that done. I don't want that. I don't want that. So did you this. just make that up? No, I didn't just make that up. I knew that that was going to be a real persuasive factor. If you approached it that way, you had a real shot. And instead, said, okay, I'll tell you what, Don. And Terrell said, you could do it, but you have to handle the panel in knockout colors. And knockout colors means that both characters would be colored purple. Apparently, their idea was so that nobody could take the panel. And hold yeah, up, well, yeah. look, it's, it's an interracial kiss going on here. By this time, I'm being called into the editorial office on every single book. I, I don't care which book it is. The book comes out, and then it's like, you know, I'm called into the editorial office, and we have to have some discussion. You know, like, so when that book came out, because a lot of times the books didn't really get read until they were in Make Ready for the, the lower tier books. And the line was expanding at the time. The only reason these books kind of got to exist is it wasn't time to go over every single book. And the books that were really being gone over were Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and the big titles, Thor, whatever the, the big titles. And, you know, these 13-page, they kind of became full books later on. They definitely didn't get the same amount of attention. And we, uh, now Marvel is expanding into the black and white line. Everybody's always overextended. And so that's how those stories managed to get through. But when that book did come out, I remember being called an editorial and say, look at this, look at this panel. And there, of course, the last panel was in full color. And I just thought, really? How'd that happen? You guys should be doing a better <laughs> job. When you guys are editing these books, you guys should be doing a better job. And that probably was getting close to one. My, my time frame there was already limited. I wanted to ask you a question about the entirety of Panther's Rage for a minute, in that Alex asked you about EC Comics earlier, and there's a lot of aspects of that that seem like, on individual storylines, seem like they were very ec influenced in terms of the characters like macabre they were grotesque horror kind of images i hadn't seen the stuff enough at that time to be influenced by i could promise you ec never entered my mind while i was writing panther's rage so literally any other questions you have but it just wasn't there just like saying i didn't really have the exposure to will eisner now later on when i was doing the adaptation for the moonstone those are the page where it's clearly inspired by Will Eisner. I saw a page that Eisner had done, and I thought, oh, I could get 100 pages of that novel into one page of comics if I do what Will did with the spirit page. And it is exactly inspired by Eisner. There's places in Zoll and Lady Ride, I can show you sequences that are clearly influenced by Milton Kniff. Like, they're definitely Kniff-inspired. But, but Panther's Rage, there's no EC in there at all. I'm going to pay you a, a big compliment on this in that I think that ultimately this is a work that is talking about war and the aspects of war in the same way that Kurtzman explored the Korean War during Two Fisted Tales in those. And I wondered, was that ultimately, was this Vietnam War influenced? Because this was about the horrors of that kind of combat and the effect it has yes, on people. It's definitely about war. Without it, so is War of the Worlds which is the reason why later on I got to where, when I was going to do Detectives Incorporated, the original story that Alex drew back in 1969, I had written two Detectives Incorporated stories. Alex was going to start drawing the second one. I don't remember how we got sidetracked, and it didn't happen. But I bring it up because there were two storylines in those first two stories. One, Denning has to shoot a kid to save Denning at Rainier's life. But in the 1969 version, it's dealing with the South Bronx gangs, and they're in a rooftop on the South Bronx. The second story was about the Vietnam War, called The Night They Died. When I finally got the chance to do Detectives Incorporated again, the first story really dealt with college campus riots. Well, you know, by 1980, I guess it was 1979, 1980, when I wrote the first Detectives Incorporated, 
nothing was going on in college campuses. So it no longer interested me to write about it. And that became the story where they're up in the South Bronx. Because I really wanted a sequence that would be so emotional and devastating. And I wanted the idea to explore that a lot of times in comics, when people have to kill somebody, they don't have to live with the killing. And it brought such a humanity to Denning's character. Because Rainier had so much going on in his, his personal life. is such a shambles. And the second storyline, like I said, originally it was going to be about the Vietnam War. But now it just come off of Kill Raven, the Black Panther, and even Saber. While Saber deals maybe even more explicitly with war at some extent. Although the plot line is like set in 2020, remembering that I wrote it in 1977. And that book almost didn't get finished because it was so controversial. But in going to Detectives Incorporated, I thought, oh, the second storyline would be the murder of a woman who was gay on a beach. I suddenly forgotten the name of the park. But every place is actually real. All the scenes are on Sunken Meadow Park. That's where that takes place. I actually worked it all out physically, went out there and did, enacted the entire crime scene so I would know exactly where everything was and I could take pictures of everything and Marshall Rogers would have exact representation of what that place looked like. But it seemed to me that was something more that I wanted to write about because I couldn't do gay characters at Marvel at that time. If I'd ever come out with Venom at that point in time, that would have been my last book. I would just have pushed them too much, too fast, too quick. It wasn't going to see print. So when I got to do Detectives Incorporated, the major restriction was that it was 46 pages of story. And that's it. That was set in stone. But within that 46 pages, I could do anything I wanted. And I'm still proud of what we did with that book, the kind of work that Marshall Rogers put into it, the kind of storytelling we did, but that we were able to do gay characters who were very human and put it in a very empathic storyline. One of my favorite reviews I've ever gotten was from a gay writer who realized, because most critics don't understand the things that limit you. I had 46 pages and tried to tell a story convincingly that you could take Rainier, who had only stereotypes in his mind for lesbians, and turn him into somebody who now really kind of has a friendship with this woman and understands her pain and what she's been through. So I'm really glad to this day that we got to do that story. Can you tell us a little bit about, I read what Dwayne McDuffie said about Jungle Action and Panther's Rage. Can you talk about that a little bit? How important it was to him? Well, how important it was to me that he wrote it. I mean, that Dwayne McDuffie, this guy is so talented. One of the best men I've ever met in my life. When he wrote the original piece, I think Dwayne wrote it. He had a blog page, but I don't know if that's where it first appeared. Or, not. I don't, or if there was a version of it. And somehow I had become aware of it. So when they were going to do the masterworks and add all these features, and Corey Settlemeyer was really great, kept his word to me. I said, if I do the introduction, I'm not going to gloss over all the problems that were had to make this book a reality. And Corey was very much supportive of that and left the introduction alone, but we also were able you know, he came over more than once to get material for the back of the book so we could do these DVD-type extras of stuff that artwork either you'd never seen, script pages, the backs of the envelopes and stuff where, where you could see notes and how things... You could really kind of get an evolution of behind the scenes of what helped shape and put this material together. So while that was being done, by this time, Dwayne and I were friends and knew each other. And I called and asked Dwayne if it would be all right if we used his piece for the Marvel Masterworks book on Panther's Rage. And a lot of the jungle action, the Black Panthers. And he said, yes, but he wanted to rewrite it. I said, no, you don't have to do anything. Just, he said, no, no, you can use it if you let me rewrite it. I read about other writers in there. I said, Dwayne, my ego can take, that's fine. Everything you've got, I don't. He said, no, I want to write a piece on those books. I said, Dwayne, whatever you want. <laughs> do it. So I had not actually seen the finished piece. And when the book came out, Marvel had not sent me a copy. I had worked with Corey. I had read the introduction that I wrote to go over because Corey gave me access to that, but I didn't know what the book looked like. On the day it came out, 
my daughter was coming to see me by train from Pennsylvania. She was in Pennsylvania at the time. So the entire family was coming in. I had a feeling maybe this was around the holiday. So I was going to go down to Penn Station to pick them up. And I thought, oh, I'll stop off at the kind of bookstore on 40th Street, which is just about six blocks up from Penn Station. I'll stop in. I just wanted to see what the book looked like. And I couldn't because they had it sealed in plastic. So I had to go buy my own book. And I was walking down the sidewalk toward Penn Station to meet my daughter. I don't look at the stuff that I did. I'm reading Joy's piece. I had tears in my eyes by the time I was done that. He was so kind to me and that the books meant so much to him. Uh, to have somebody that talented and have such strong feelings about it. It's a beautiful piece. I mean, it really is lovely to read. Yes, it is. I've been very fortunate. A lot of the readers... Thank God for the reason. Thank God for Dwayne. I mean, I miss him every day. Uh, I was actually working with Dwayne. The problem that you guys hear right now, I was having, it was a different version of this, where I was almost getting sick every day. And I was waking up with the taste of blood in my mouth every day. So like, it gives you an idea of how, I really didn't know whether my days were numbered or what exactly, how this is going to all play out. Because the doctors weren't able to figure out what was causing all of it. And I remember telling Dwayne, I hadn't yet met his wife, Charlotte. Charlotte was supposed to join us that night. We were meeting at a restaurant in Manhattan. And I remember saying to Dwayne, don't let these motherfuckers rewrite history, Dwayne. You know what was going on in the time frame. These books were being done. I never had, Dwayne was much younger than I am, and I surely didn't think that I was going to outlast him. And I thought if there's one person I would entrust with the history of that, it would be Dwayne. When Dwayne died, I was working on a Ben 10 form. I had been in California. I had been invited to Robert Culp's memorial service. You asked about people who influenced me. Certainly Robert Culp is one of them. I can't imagine who I would be without I Spy. I know the kid in Rhode Island growing up could never have imagined that he would get to know Robert Culp and that we would actually spend time together. And In fact, he wanted me to adapt one of his scripts into comics. Like, Bob wanted Gene Cole in the drug because he loved Gene Cole's outlook. And so did I. I had never heard this. He was really into comics? Oh, Robert Cobb's totally into comics. So that's why Nathaniel Dusk is dedicated to him. There's a couple of episodes of I Spy that, if you know anything about pop culture back in that time, in the 50s and 60s, especially with movies, maybe even TV shows if they used it, if somebody was seen reading comics, that was an indication virtually that the person was slow-minded, that they weren't, you know. And it was like a short end that movies used Okay, this person, you know, look, he's reading the comic. How dumb is he? You know, he can't be spot. But in I Spy, there's a couple of episodes. I know one is, I think, called Sparrowhawk. They're in Las Vegas. And they're sitting around poolside by a hotel pool. And, and they're reading comics. There's another one where they're reading comics as well. So one Bob is reading Dick Tracy. And another, I think he's reading a Charlton comic called Conga. You have to say, Bob, Conga? What the hell? Okay, whatever you say. But yeah, he was a big Terry and the Pirates fan. That was like his favorite comic of all time. And I managed to get him some Terry before Dean Mullaney went and did these superlative editions of Terry and the Pirates. And he wrote a screenplay. He was actually actively, he had just sent me his screenplay for Terry and the Pirates. And I can't believe it. Robert Culp was like, sending Don, would you read this over for me and give me notes? Wait, you're Robert Culp. What do you mean, give you notes? Like, anything you want to do as far as I'm concerned is fine. So, yeah, I really appreciated him terrifically. Oh, that's fascinating. So when he's doing Greatest American Hero, he's totally into comics and has a sense of all of that, doesn't he? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Ah. Absolutely. I'll never watch that show with the same, and now I have a new perspective. That's fantastic. I'm going to finish up with Panther's Rage But I wanted to ask you about one issue, and this is an indulgence, but I'm going to take it. There was that issue with the dinosaurs in the pit and the character, and I can't recall his name, but he's kind of a mystical, mythical sprite of some kind. And it ends with the bird finally dying in the tar pits. Is there a connection between the bird and the sprite? because he disappears when the bird dies. And I just want to say that's one of the most poetic issues also that I said what my favorite scene was, but that's an issue that I love. You're always poetic, but that one especially, 
just held up incredibly well for me. And I wondered if what your thoughts of were on that issue, especially. Okay. Number one, somebody wrote a really incredibly in-depth piece on that particular scene you're talking about. But to be honest with you, that type of question, there is no answer to for me. I really believe what you find in that scene, that's for you to determine. If you have to explain what it means to the person, you're really taking away any power it might have in the way that it speaks to a person. That's the the most answer that I can give you in terms of, I'm not going to tell you what you should be thinking about that either. You know what you feel, you know what you experience. What I'm hoping is that there will be a sequence that people just respond to it, they relate to it, and it says this to them. It won't always say the same thing to everybody. I know John Warner told me that with the last issue of Kill Raven, The Morning After Morning Pray, because many people still analyze what that book is about. You know, you have to be listening, and he has certain piece of music that he would play every time he read it. He said, you have to be listening to this music to really understand that piece. I said, you know, John, whatever works for you, if that's what you need, then that's what you should do. And if it brings you enjoyment, and at the same time, it gives you a sense of meaning that you didn't have before, then I'm all for it. So I'm glad that you feel that it was poetic and that it spoke to you on that level. And it's, you know, it's just amazing to me that the books we're talking about right now, they're over 40 years old. And the fact that so many people still come up to me and they know exactly where they were when they read a particular book, what impact it had to them, what it said to them. And I don't know why it should surprise me because I have my own stuff. I think we're talking about, say, the Budwing or See Them Die or like Steve Carell dying. Well, I know exactly where I was with particular books and what it meant to me. And that I don't know who I would be if those books, that movie, this TV series weren't part of my life. So it all depends on how you relate to it individually. The only thing I hoped is that when people started to read one of the books, that they would start reading it and think, oh, this isn't just another comic I'm going to fluff through and it's just going to throw it on the pile and I'm on to the next one. And I was hoping that some people would get something from it and go, oh, wait a minute, let me go back. I need to pay attention here. This isn't just another comic to get through for the month and, and then get to next week's comics. I hoped it would be something. And so, and you know, the storyteller can't really ask for much more than that, that there are people out there that care so passionately about these stories and relate to them so much and been able to relay that to me over the years. I mean, it's just amazing. You instilled a love of comics in me that is why I'm 60 years old and I'm talking to you today about comics. Oh, that's right. I'm 74 with a, a voice that can hardly, <laughs> can hardly use. <laughs> and even though I'm, I really appreciate what you guys do, because once the history of these things are lost, it's gone. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So if I could do something to help, like when Rich died, I was with his widow, Mila, and Mila was crying one time I was with her and said, please don't let them forget Rich died. Please don't let them forget Rich. Not as long as I'm alive, Mila. And if you notice, if you're on my Facebook page or you go up on the DominicRecord.com website, you will see that I'm very, very, very fortunate. Before we end this thing, listen, not only do I get to work with Tom Sutton and Rich Buckler and Craig Russell and Billy Graham, but then down the line, I get to work with Jose Ortiz and Esteban Morodo and Mike Mayhew and Dwayne Turner. Like Dwayne and Mike became really best friends. You know, like a lot of the others, Gene Colan, I love Gene dearly. At one point, I was with, I saw Gene, I went to the hospice the day before he died, I guess. And I spent the day with him into night, got incredibly lost coming back, trying to get back into Brooklyn. I got so lost. I was for hours lost in Brooklyn. But I spent hours sitting with Gene. At first, I was sitting in a chair and we were talking. And Gene still had a questing mind. He was a day away from dying. But if I quoted a line to him, like, I can't quote my own material, but I can create other writers. And I remember, like, telling him a line from Bloodwing that I've always loved. I'm tired of people looking at me and seeing only themselves. When you look at me, you see me, but you see nothing, nothing at all. And Gene said, write, write that down, Don, write that down. We shall never cease from exploration, but the end of all our exploring 
would be to return where we first started, but to know the place for the first time. And here's Jean, only has a date of you. Don, write that stuff down for me so I can study that stuff tonight. And for the last two hours, I guess we were together, I just sat on the edge of the bed with him. And Jean had huge, large, incredibly strong hand. And we just held hands and sat on the bed and I quoted things to him and we told stories back and forth. But, oh, I got to tell you a quick Gene Colin story. Yes, please. Uh, the first thing Gene and I ever worked on together was a kill raven, something worth dying for. And later on, I did a, a Hodiah twist story called The Hero Killer Principle. And yep. that was much later. That, I don't know how many years later, but man, at least four or five years. Four later. years later. Okay. Four, four years, because 74 was The Amazing Adventures 26. And the other was 78. You guys know all this stuff better than me. I knew it was sometime later because for Gene, every time we're talking, I'm with his wife, Adrian, and Adrian's going, you know, Gene never, he never talks to me about the stories he's doing. Because he's stopping, like every person, he's saying, look look what's happening now, look what's happening now. And I think it was just the kind of story that Gene really, really liked. And so I know one night I'm talking to Gene and I go to Gene, you do the serpent stallion and such a, you really captured the serpent stallion exactly what it was. You, you understood everything. It's like you were inside my head, Gene. And Gene goes like, serpent stallion? Yeah, you know, we kill raven. What's a kill raven? When you and I worked together on the kill raven thing, <laughs> and Gene's going, we worked on the kill raven? Yeah, Gene, you even drew Camilla Frost nude. Do you remember? And then they had the serpent stallion <laughs> on. So Gene never, he's going, the first one we ever worked on was with Diet Twist. And I said, it's not Gene, I swear to God, it's Kill Raven. So at some point in time, because Gene and I were together a lot, and at the end of his life, he was living fairly close to where I was. So I would try to stop and see him once a week, or once I knew he was there. Because in the beginning, I had no idea he was living that close to me. And one time he had to have dental surgery and... So I said, Gene, I'll take you there. I just, I, we're driving to someplace in Brooklyn. And if you know anything about living in the city, like wherever there's doctor's places or dentist places, there's no place for you to park. It's, it's like crowded. And I had to find a place to park. And, and Gene is saying, okay, Donna, I'm going to go and have this thing cut out. And I'll get a car service home. No, no, Gene, you're not going in to have surgery and be alone. I'm going to find a place to park this car and I'm going to go wait for you. He said, oh, no, Don, you know, Don, you know. I said, Gene, you can ask a lot more of me than that. Love Gene Cohen. I love oh. working with him. And I feel profoundly privileged that I got to be a part of his life. And I told his daughter, Nancy, as long as I'm around, nobody's going to forget your dad. I just feel there's a real necessity. I've told Billy Graham's granddaughter, Shona, that, again, Billy is such a part of my life. And right down to when I was going to do the Ku Klux Klan stuff, when Billy got the press script, Billy called me up. He goes, Don, are you sure you want to do this? I said, yeah, I want to do it. Yeah, I'm there. He said, hey, listen, Don, I'm up here in Harlem. The Klan isn't coming up here to get me. You're living out in Queen. Are you sure you want to do this? And I joke it with Billy, and I say something like, oh, come on, Billy, they can take a joke, can't they? And I can still <laughs> hear Billy's tone of voice now. No, they can't, Don. They can't. And, you know, part of just the friendship with Billy and I still remember the very last phone call that we had together. But that's being safe and saber and exploitation of everything. Mm-hmm. That will have my last lines that I remember to this day. Because Billy said it's something that he didn't have to do. And we didn't have no idea at the time that it would be the last time he and I ever talked again. You know, we talked again. Well, this has been awesome, Don. We've had a great time listening to your personal history of your life, as well as your life in comics on the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Strand and Jim Thompson. 